been studying um, all of Luke 15, and particularly we started into the study of uh, the prodigal son. That's the longest of all of Jesus' parables. Jesus gave about 60 parables that we know of during his lifetime. Those are the ones that are recorded in your Bible in the, in the four different Gospels. Luke chapter 15 contains three that are really crucial to the whole theme of what Luke is trying to get in his entire Gospel. Um, Luke 19.10 tells us, in fact, I've given that to you as something to memorize over the course of this series. Luke 19.10 tells us that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. In the Pharisees, the, the, the most religious people, the people who should have really known what God was all about, didn't have a clue what God was about. And it's, it was really kind of um, sad, scary, frustrating. Here you have people who know Scripture better than anybody else during that day, and they didn't have a clue what God was all about, and it becomes a very sad part of the story as Jesus is pointing out um, repentance and how God celebrates over one sinner who repents. And, and even those of us who are Christians, we still sin, and it still, recommend, or it still calls for our repentance. When we sin, we still need to repent before God. In fact, that's... Um, what we were talking about the last several weeks is defining repentance and all those kinds of things. And it's almost unfair, as I've mentioned last week, to call this parable the story of the prodigal son. It's really a tale of two sons, and that doesn't even adequately do it. In fact, as I point out in your handout, really this parable, beginning in verse 11 of Luke chapter 15, tells us the story of different angles of repentance. Uh, and really, we're looking at repentance from three different angles. Well, you have the perspective of the younger son. The younger son, the younger son he's the one that really kind of bears this whole shame of the parable, um, and he's the one for which we tend to remember the namesake of the parable, and that's the prodigal son. So just to let you know, the younger son, he's the one who's the prodigal son. But the parable just isn't about him. There's also the father, as we're going to begin to discover here today and in the coming weeks, we tend to look at the Father and say, oh, look how amazing His grace was, which is true, extravagantly true. But because we're thousands of years removed, the, the details of the parable aren't so obvious to us. The culture of the parable isn't obvious to us. And so it, we need to study a few details to see the shame that the father brought upon himself by doing what he did, which teaches us a lot about repentance. And then you also have the older brother. Don't forget about him. In fact, there's these brilliant shifts in transitions that Jesus does in the telling of this parable. It starts out with focusing primarily on the younger brother, and then there's this transition that takes place that the parable focuses primarily on the father, and then there's a third transition that takes place where the parable focuses primarily on the older brother. And why does Jesus do that? He does it because he wants us to be able to see repentance and the necessity of repentance and the dynamics of repentance from these three different angle. And each angle tells us something valuable about repentance. It tells us something valuable about heaven's joy over a single sinner repentant. Also teased you a little bit last week that you know how this story ends. 
And, and you, you may think, well, wait a second, doesn't it end with the older brother getting frustrated? D- the story doesn't end there. You know how the story ends, even though it's not written in the pages of the Bible, and we're going to talk about this. It is written in the pages of the Bible, but it's not written in the pages of Luke chapter 15. What ends up happening is the older brother murders his father because of his hatred for him. And we're going to see how your Bible clearly tells you that about this parable and how all of this fleshes out. And in fact, the first century Christians would have clearly understood what I just told you, and so it's good for us to kind of recover some of that knowledge and some of that culture to be able to remember those things. So remember that the parable that we're studying is a couple thousand years old, civilization much different than ours, and so the meanings of these stories need a little bit of explanation. If we miss some of these details, you might think, oh my goodness, more and more details. If we miss these details, boy, we miss so much that is rich about this parable, and we've missed many of the things that Jesus' original audience would have heard. So we're going to take probably at least three weeks to study through this short parable. And that might seem like an awful lot, but let me just kind of encourage you to be here for each of those three weeks because it's a good investment. It's a good investment because you're going to learn more about the cost of repentance. You're going to learn more about what it cost God to give us the opportunity to repent. You're going to learn more about what it takes even to to truly repent. And even what it takes to really, truly, genuinely forgive someone in the shame at times that is involved in genuine forgiveness. So I would like to encourage you, stick around here for the next several weeks because I'm hoping, I'm betting that you're going to learn something and I'm hoping that that'll teach you more about your relationship with your Father in Heaven. So let's dive right into it. Um, If you have your Bible, open it, Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11. I'd like to read through the entire parable. We're going to have this practice each time that we study the parable because I really believe in saturation. The more that we read something, the more it begins to soak in and we begin to, to know these things and we catch something new each time. Beginning in verse 11 of chapter 15 of the Gospel of Luke, this is how it reads out of the English Standard Version. And he said, he being Jesus, Now, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. So he divided his property between them. Not many days later, that's important to catch, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. There he squandered his uh, property in reckless living. Well, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. Talk about the great insult to a Jew. Verse 16, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, verse 17 says, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. 
I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long, long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now you know how the parable turns here in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and draw near to, drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, he being the older brother, and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, the father said to the oldest brother, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It's fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother, he was dead and is alive. He was lost and found, and hence the name of our whole series that we've been in, Lost and Found. Father in heaven, I thank you for your holy word, and I pray today that as we study it, that as we diligently look into it, that you would reveal your word to us. May it come alive. May it be fresh in our eyes and our minds and our hearts. And may we even see ourselves in this story. May we see your great love and your extravagant grace. Help us to follow you because of how much that you loved us and that while we were still sinners, you sent Jesus to die for us. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Um, so much, I, I feel like I have to even pull myself to not teach as I'm going through that parable, because there's so much that's packed into every little sentence in that parable that teaches us something more about our relationship with Jesus, and we have to kind of study the details to be able to find those things. So let's begin to look at a few of those details, okay? So it's not directly stated, by the way, this is, I think, in your handout, while it's not directly stated in the parable, you don't immediately see it. So at the outset of verse 11, it's not directly stated there. You don't immediately see it as you're reading through the parable, but as you're picking up in the parable and you think through the details of the parable, the parable tells us that the father was wealthy. Now we don't know what 
if he had any kind of position or standing in, in the community. We don't know any of those details. In fact, evidently, Jesus thought that those details weren't very important for us to know. He, he just says, listen, there's this really wealthy father, and he had two sons. And in fact, there's, there's some real clear indications that Jesus' original audience would have definitely caught on to, that not only was he a man of modest means, this is a man of extravagant means. Think about this. Uh, um, he has multiple servants. We see that in verse 26. We see it in verse 17. He has a flock of some sorts, um, likely at least sheep. We know that he has goats because the oldest brother talks about the goats that, that the father owns. The, the oldest brother is out in the field. He's not the shepherd. He's probably the foreman. He's probably laying back and kind of watching the other shepherds, the ones that would be considered under shepherds. We know verses 25 and 29 teaches those things. He has a grain-fed calf at his disposal. disposal. This, listen, this means that this just wasn't an open grazing calf, one that would graze kind of in the open countryside, but rather he was in some kind of a fence. He would have been kept in some kind of a fence, a lot like veal is raised today, not in that kind of a small thing, but he's grain-fed to make sure that the meat tastes really good. And that kind of calf was not available to just the common person. You had to be someone very wealthy to be able to have a calf who's fed regularly to afford the grain, to afford all those details and the servants to take care of that, and to be able to use it at your disposal. And typically, what would happen in the custom of Jesus' time is that if you were extravagantly wealthy, if you were really wealthy, that you would have this kind of calf at your disposal. And so when, when a, um, a valuable guest would come in, you would have the fattened calf killed. Or there was a wedding banquet, you would have that fattened calf killed. And so because he has a fattened calf, we know that he's a, a, a wealthy person, and wealthy enough to raise large livestock, and particularly this fattened calf. Overall, this is a man, right, of high economic means. Well, we also know that he owns property. And, and the word that's used for property, in the English, we just see the word property. But in the Greek, the word that's used for property indicates that he owned real estate and he owned material possessions. Listen, how do I know that? How can you kind of make that kind of claim? Because there's a lot of different Greek words that could be translated into English as property. And you could have used a, a different Greek word that would have just exclusively meant real estate. Could have used a different Greek word that meant exclusively just like material possessions. But he uses a, a Greek word that indicates that this man owned real estate and he owned tangible possessions. And so we know that this is a man that is wealthy. There's quite a few little indications here. So what happens then is this young son comes and asks for this property. By the way, the way that you acquire property, think of this with me, in the ancient world, there's only a couple ways that you could have property. You either acquire it by force, and typically during that time period in Jesus' time, the Roman Empire controlled everything, so unless there was a coup taking place, that wouldn't have happened. So you either had to pay for it, which would have been very costly in Jesus' time, or you would have inherited it. 
And what typically happened, and, and some, somewhat kind of like farms in, in our culture happen, is you inherit some property and then you also buy more property. And so that would have been probably the similar case that Jesus' audience would have understood. And so when this, when this young man comes and asks his father, divide for me all of this stuff. I'm asking that you divide for me this inheritance that I should receive after you're dead. He's saying a pretty, pretty horrible thing. The fact that the younger brother makes this request is even more horrible. So all of Jesus' audience is Jesus is telling this parable. You, you could probably even hear audible gasps because they're like, oh, that's just horrible. Oh my goodness, I, I can't believe that such a, a horrible thing is happening. And by the way, the fact that the younger brother asks for it rather than the older brother is even more detestable because in Jesus' culture, the oldest brother received a double portion and he would have been the one to receive his inheritance before the younger brother. So the fact that the younger brother even makes this request puts him at odds immediately with his older brother. The plot thickens when Jesus tells us the response of the father. The proper response of the father in Jesus' culture should have been, and this is what the crowd would have expected, ready? It would have been an open-handed slap across the face. That was what was cultural. And this would have happened not in private. What would have happened is the, because this was what took place, the oldest or the father would have brought the younger brother into the public square of the town. And he would have called out to gather all of his friends and neighbors, and he would have slapped him openly in front of everyone to show the degree of disgrace that the younger brother brought upon the father. Now, that's what they would have been expecting. Is that how the father responded? No. And, and in fact, the Mosaic law even goes even further. It, it, it says, if a son or a daughter disgraces you, you have two options. Well, you can treat them as dead, and we're going to talk about this, because obviously, now we don't see it in the English very clearly, but in the original, it would have been absolutely clear that this family does treat him as dead. This family does, because at the end of the parable, he says, my son who is dead, he would have been treated as completely dead. They actually would have said a Kaddish. They would have said a funeral mass over after the son left. So they would have given him his funeral in sending him off. So when he says, my son who is dead, they would have treated him as dead. Now that's option one. Now listen, option two is, according to the Mosaic law, if you have a child who is consistently rebellious, what you do is you take that child before the elders of the town, and you present him, and you present your case, and you know what they do, parents? They stone him to death so that the whole of Israel would be in fear, and he violated the fifth commandment. Do you remember what the fifth commandment is? Honor your father and your mother. 
So just the fact that he made that request, he, he, violated, he sinned, he broke the fifth command, and the consequent from that would have been, according to the Mosaic law, that he would have at least had an open face slap in front of everybody, and then he would have been treated as dead. And then if the father wanted, he had every, Mosaic, every Jewish right to, to take him before the elders and to do these kinds of things. And if you don't believe me, you can go back into your Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 18 to 21 is where you're going to find that. In essence, here's what the younger brother said, and we may not get this because our culture is different. Dad, I hate you. In fact, I wish that you were dead, and I want your money, and the only thing that's standing between me and that money is you. The fact that you're still alive. So, instead of killing you, give me what is owed to me. Well, it isn't owed to him anyhow. And in essence, that's exactly what Jesus' audience would have heard when they heard what the younger brother did. What's shocking to them is that Jesus turns this parable on its ear because he says the father does it. They would have been like, are you kidding me? Is he insane? With so much dishonor and so much shame, he he gave in to his son's request? That's that's shameful for the father to do. It's a tremendous twist in the story. And what ends up happening is in this society, do you know how the townsfolk would have viewed this guy? They would have viewed him in some respects as the village idiot. They, they would have said, in a, in a culture that is filled with all kinds of shame, they would have thought, this guy is filled. The father, not only is the son filled with shame, but the father is filled with shame because of what he did and how he bended to, or bent to his son's request. In, in that Jewish culture, There were very few exceptions to where the father could leave the sons when he was still alive, their inheritance. But what was to happen is the sons were to manage everything then that was given to them. They weren't to sell it. They weren't to do anything with it. They were to take care of it and to manage it. Typically, that would happen if the father was incapacitated or if the father, you know, was really, really disabled or injured and all that kind of stuff. You know, they didn't have hospitals like they, they do now. And it was the job then of, of the ancestors, those who would be, have the, uh, the livelihood divided among them, to maintain and to manage that until the father's death. Only then could they take care and do with the, the estate as they desired. So Jesus' audience would have understood that the father gave his sons everything that was his. Are you starting to see, by the way, any spiritual themes here where the father gives us everything that is his and he's taken on so much shame just so that we could now have life? It, it, the Father has given us everything. Our Heavenly Father has given us everything. And we're going to inherit the earth with Him and all these amazing things. And Jesus was saying here, listen, this Father gave over His livelihood. He gave, he gave over everything. He gave control of everything that sustained Him, everything that was passed down from His ancestors. You, you know, land they had inherited and everything. 
and he passed it down to these sons. And not only did he pass it down to his sons, but he did it at a shameful request. You can't miss this idea as part of the lesson of the parable. Circumstances that it, this happened was, was crazy. Today, you know what we call this today? We call this enabling someone today. Enabling someone to do bad things. Because that's exactly what Jesus' audience would have said. Wait a second. Uh, we know what's next. We know what's coming next. In verse 13, there it is. Not many days later. What happens? So the father divides his, his real estate, his property, every possession that he owns between his sons. You know what the youngest son does? You know the parable says it. He liquidates everything. He, he liquidates it. You, you've seen these things going out of business sale, right? Everything's at discount prices. For, think about this. Think about the practical details that people in Jesus' culture would have quickly got. Not, Jesus says, so not many days later. What does that mean? It means he sells things half price. He sells it at discount prices so that he can get on with his life. This is even a greater insult because you, you know why? Things that Jesus' audience would have understood? Because you don't sell to anybody who is outside of the family. How do you know that? Because the Bible tells me that. It's Mosaic law. Jesus' audience would have understood that even in dire circumstances, that even to prevent bankruptcy, for example, the only people that you could sell your property to legally, according to Mosaic law, was family. And then on the year of the Jubilee, that property was even then returned to its original owner. So Jesus' culture would have thought, are you kidding me? This guy is selling to outside the family. He's liquidating his inheritance and everything. Probably only gets a fraction of the, of, of the value of, of his inheritance. And he all, does it so that he can get on with his life. Jesus' audience would have understood it. So in verse 13 when he says he gathered everything together. Well, obviously he couldn't gather together real estate, Right? So he gathers the money that he has sold things for, and he gathers maybe a few possessions that he wanted to take along with him, and then he prepares to go on his journey. He gathers those kinds of things. That's really at the heart of the younger son. He wants to live. Listen, and isn't this the way, isn't this the way that oftentimes we live our lives in rebellion against our Heavenly Father. We want to live life the way that we want to live life, and we don't want anybody to have anything to say about it. And in fact, if they start to say anything about it, we shove them off, and then we don't want to hear from them again, right? Because we want to do what we want to do, and then, then because we want to be spiritual, and then we want God to bless us in, in doing that, right? That's not the way that the kingdom of heaven works. We follow God's directions so that God might bless according to his kingdom and that we'll receive our inheritance at the right time. Listen, the attitude of this rebellious younger son, it's self-centered. And why is it self-centered? Because it's sin nature. 
So often people do silly things because they're self-centered. We feed, we feed that sinful nature that thinks that the world revolves around us. And so we make choices that look like the world revolves around us. That's what the prodigal son is doing. He doesn't care about others. He doesn't care about who it's going to hurt. He doesn't care about um, who might be offended in the process, who he might hurt in the process. He wants no one to have anything to say about the way that he wants to live life. And that's why, by the way, he goes and he lives off in a distant land. Because nobody can say anything about the way that I live life if I'm not around anybody that knows me. I can live in extravagance with all my money and psh, be done with it. Nobody looking over my shoulder to tell me that this is wrong. And that's still, by the way, at the heart of prodigals today. People who are far from God today still want life to be all about them. They still want to, to allow uh, themselves to have control of everything versus submitting to the divine plan and the will of God. That's kind of at the heart of a prodigal. It's heartbreaking tale. And you know, I feel like my time is up, which it is, and so we've only begun to scratch the surface. We've only gone through a few verses, and I hope that you're beginning to see the shame and the heartbreak and the gasping details that people would have thought as Jesus was telling this parable. And there's more yet to come that are even worse. So I want to encourage you to join us in the next weeks as we begin to continue to unravel these detail details. Let me give you a couple take-home ideas, some things that I thought about as I was reading through this. I thought, I wonder how much of my life centers around me. You know, that's a pretty convicting thought for me. Um, I like to do what I want to do. I really do. <laughs> and, y you know, I, I have a um, uh, mentor years ago, and he said, you know, Brad, when, uh, he, when he found out that Jamie was pregnant with Taylor, he said something that he learned in becoming a dad is you learn an awful lot about your relationship with God and how much God loves us. And it's fascinating that as a young dad, I begin to see how much the world doesn't revolve around me and how much you, you got to change your life to be able to not only care for, but bless and love on these little Indians that now are taking over your house. And, and it's such a, a, a blessing. And isn't it fascinating that God gave up so much so that we could be reconciled and redeemed. And if we are to truly follow in the model of Jesus, then we need to shed this stuff that makes our life so self-centered. We need to get rid of this stuff that makes the world revolve around us and begin to realize that we need to love on others. Why? Because God, one, demands it, God desires it, and because God first loved us in such a way. And so that's what it means to model after him. Another thought that came across my mind as I was reading through this is, how much disgrace have I really brought on Jesus how much disgrace have I really brought on my heavenly father by lifestyle choices? 
And I think it's a good question for us to examine because really that's what the prodigal is doing. He has all of these lifestyle choices that are outside the desires and really the good desires of the father for the best interests of his son. And and yet the son chooses to live outside of those boundaries, those protections. And so where does he end up? He ends up in a place that's far from home. And he ends up in a relationship that's broken. And that's what happens to us spiritually. That, that when we live lifestyles, and we know it, right? We know God's speaking to us through this Holy Spirit that we at times make choices and lifestyle choices that are outside the desires of God. And why does God want us to live that way? Because he knows what's best for us. He knows that if we follow his directions for life, that our life will be the best that it possibly can be and that he can abundantly bless us as a result of our obedience to him. And what God does is he takes on all of the shame and disgrace. In fact, that's what Jesus did on the cross, right? And that while we were sinners, he, he died for us. Leads me to my last thought, I guess. When we make choices that we know are blatantly outside of the design of God, do you know what we've done? In essence, what we've done is we've cheapened God's grace. We said, what we say is we know, I know how costly it was. I know that, yeah, it costs the, the life of Jesus, and that's what we celebrate at Easter and all that kind of stuff, right? I go to church, I know what the cost is. But when we live a life that's disobedient to the design and the will of the Father, we cheapen what he has done. And that is why it's valuable. That's why it's crucial for us to follow after him. I've learned at times, you know, um, it, in these recent years, I've come to appreciate my American freedom so much more. I kind of look back and I think, boy, I really used to take a lot of things for granted. So much of my family has served in the military um, willfully or um, drafted, I don't want to use the word unwillfully because that's probably not the f right, fair word. Proud to serve the country, but drafted into the enlistment, right? And I, I've, I've learned in, in listening to those stories, the sacrifice, the great cost that my freedom has, has cost so many people and um, so many in, in my family. And I'm learning the more that I obey Jesus, the more I learn about Jesus, I'm learning how much my freedom in him, my redemption, has cost. It's because of that that we can sing about such amazing grace. It's because of that that we can be blessed. It's because of that that we can even be here today.